The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Money Movers. I'm Carl Quintanero with Sarah Eisen, live at Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. Coming up today, Verizon's chief, Hans Vestberg, live from Las Vegas, ahead of the Super Bowl. Plus, take two shares dropping after disappointing guidance. CEO Strauss Selnick joins us to break down the quarter here at Post 9. Also later, Caesars chief, Tom Reeg, with Super Bowl gambling set to smash some records this weekend. But first, speaking of records, take a look at the S&P 500 as it crosses 5,000 right now. Today's move is being driven again by information technology and communication services. Those are the, the sectors that have propelled us basically all year here. Consumer discretionary is the third one that's in the green. Everybody else is actually in the red today, including financials and utilities, healthcare and industrials. The Dow is under a little pressure, down 85 points. We're still higher for the week, though, on the S&P and the NASDAQ, a little more than 1% on the S&P for the NASDAQ up almost 2%. Let's bring in our first guest of the hour to talk about the environment, credit, M&A, and the company's earnings with the stock up big in today's trading. Live from Post 9 is Blue Owl Capital co-CEO Mark Lipschultz. Blue Owl has $165 billion in assets under management. Great to have you back, Mark. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to be here. It's, it's great to have you. We look at you as sort of a proxy for private credit, direct lending. That's your business. What's the environment right now? Fortunately, the environment is good. The environment is good for what we do. We at Blue Owl, as, as you know, we provide a series of capital solutions for that are tailored and are predictable and are real partner-like solutions for capital needs. And it's a good environment for that. The economy seems solid. Interest rates are in a band, perhaps, that people can understand. Uh, and taken all together, you know, that means we can deliver great solutions and have a portfolio that performs really well at the same time. So for us in real estate and in credit and in our GP strategic capital business, frankly, we're seeing great strength in all of them. Even with the, we have seen this move in interest rates lower in the market in anticipation of lower Fed rates and as a result, more activity in the capital markets. And I do wonder if that's sort of competitive to you as banks get back at it in a big way in terms of lending. So, you know, the, look, the path of rates, I won't by any measure pretend I can predict. Uh, we're purposely in the business of providing floating rate loans. So for the investors with us, they don't have to guess the path of rates. Seems to move rapidly, people's beliefs. Uh, seems only a month ago was going to be multiple cuts before March. And <laughs> latest is now the Fed saying maybe no cuts, you know, come March. So I, I, I think inflation is probably stickier. But anyway, the path of rates, to your point, you know, certainly rates have eased. And it is true that the bank market or the syndicated capital markets are back. And, and I have to tell you, that's a good thing. It's a good thing. Now, it's a good thing with an asterisk. It's a good thing because we need a functioning capital system. We in private capital markets, we don't have the capital to support the whole economy. We don't have the capital to support a fully vibrant M&A marketplace. And you know, I would like to see, and I think we will all benefit this year, 
from having a more active market in general. Um, so, you know, the asterisk is, of course, look, in 2022 um, and to a degree in 2023, we were really the only marketplace available for lending, and, and law was a big part of that. And that has its, its obvious advantages, but a functioning economic system and capital marketplace, net-net, well, that's a benefit all the way around. Does that mean there's any change to the trajectory toward private credit, or does it slower growth? How does that affect your industry? More activity is generally good for us. Now, there'll always be these gives and takes and back and forths in terms of at a given moment, if there's no syndicated market, then obviously our share is enormous. An active syndicated market and some of the capital goes, some of the opportunities go that direction. But taken together, look back to 2021 when there was a wide open capital marketplace. Those are some of our most active years. So I, I actually think the rising tide is a net positive. And what's happened over the last few years is people have come to appreciate the benefits of the private capital solution. We've talked about this before, the three P's, predictability, privacy, partnership, it has value. So every time, even when the, when the market rises, we end up rising and holding on to a bigger share. So I, I feel good about the environment. What do you see in the portfolio in terms of credit quality, any signs of stress in any particular industries? So, you know, no signs of meaningful stress, which is, you know, I would start with the best news, I suppose, for, of course, our portfolio, but to the degree for one the can read off yeah. of, exactly, to the degree one can impute off of, look, I'm a, I'm a ground-up thinker, not a macro expert, but I can tell you, we have hundreds of companies in our portfolio. And when we look at our latest quarter of average performance for that portfolio, and it's a pretty U.S.-centric portfolio, now we skew toward very, we focus on the like software and healthcare. We obviously try to select great companies. So I'm not suggesting our numbers parallel the economy, but the direction presumably should be related. In the last quarter, average EBITDA for a portfolio company of ours, up 15%. I mean, that, that's a healthy, well, certainly healthy for a portfolio, but it has to suggest a healthy overall ecosystem. Has there been any um, migration in the reasons for credit? In other words, CapEx versus something else? Uh, uh, yeah, it's a good question. I think we continue to see maybe this, an expansion of the use of private capital solutions for more purposes. So, of course, we continue to support a lot of M&A, support growth capital. Uh, certainly one of the benefits of that partnership I referred to, private borrowers, last year, they could still do acquisitions. Come to us and say, hey, we see a great strategic opportunity to grow our business. How about adding to our capital pool? And if you were in the syndicated market, that was a nothing doing conversation. And for us, in many cases, we said, absolutely. You have a wonderful company. We have a wonderful partnership love to provide that capital. And if I were to carry that same logic, if I could outside of credit for a moment, take a look at like our real estate business, where again, we do these triple net lease, really capital solutions to free up capital out of real estate for companies. And you know, the dynamic of onshoring, and you just saw Sam Altman talking about five to seven trillion for onshoring. <laughs> you know, actually, semiconductors have already been a theme for us. We've done an R&D facility with Intel. We've done a couple other fab facilities, and we have some pretty meaningful ones in our pipeline. So it's not just credit where these private solutions are are additive. I'm glad you mentioned real estate because I was going to ask you about that and the real estate funds. I mean, there's obviously going to be a big opportunity to plug some equity holes in commercial real estate. And I wonder if you see that as an opportunity to raise more, raise more funds, raise more capital and drive up your AUM. 
I do see it as an opportunity for us to deliver another value-added solution for our investors and for the users of our capital. Today, we lead the market in this triple net lease arena. In fact, we just raised a $5 billion fund, twice the last size, largest real estate fund in the U.S. this year. And that's because we provide a durable solution in an otherwise turbulent market. But to your good point, Sarah, look, we're in the credit business. We're in the real estate business. Real estate credit is deeply disrupted. The regional banking system is disrupted. We certainly see that as a way to really take our strategic strengths and fill in between and deliver a great answer for, again, the user of the capital and the investor. I'm glad you mentioned some of the semiconductor build-out that's happening. I mean, charts like AMAT today are pretty incredible, or ASML. We just did a hit from the White House where commerce is doling out some of these awards. But you'd think the story would already have been so well understood and yet the action in some of the equity of these semicap providers is astounding. Yeah. Do you think the, do you think there's uh, the education process continues here? It is incredible to watch. And again, I'll be sure to know my limits in terms yeah. of public markets, not my expertise. I've done private markets for 30 years. But it is probably safe to deduce that the, the magnitude of the opportunity is starting to settle in. Both the magnitude of demand for the chips to feed the you know, the AI engines, but also now the infrastructure to go with it, which of course is where we focus, which is things like how much capital it takes to build these facilities and develop them. So it does seem the, the maybe second order effect is settling in, right? This idea of how much it takes to drive the information economy in this new ever faster iteration with you know, large language models and you know, the backbone of, of, of AI. You know what I always ask at the end of the interview? You raised your dividend. Niners or Chiefs? <laughs> Niners for me. Niners I'm going to go Niners. That wasn't what I was going to ask. I was going to ask if you're going to get to a dollar per share in a year, which is what you've been promising and why a lot of people are in the stock. And maybe one of the reasons the stock is up, what, more than 70% since we first started talking about it together we, with the IPO. Well, look, we took a big step the right direction. We're at, uh, we raised our dividend 29% to 72 cents, and we continue down the path to be in or around that dollar. And every time we take a step, of course, the, there's always uncertainties, but the band narrows. We have a very predictable high growth business, and so that band should be narrow, and that remains our target to be in or around that dollar. And I think that's a one headline, if I could, that one of the research yeah. analysts wrote, you know, nothing blue about 72, which was our 72 cent dividend. So I, I appreciated that one. Yeah, no, no, nothing blue about the stock price run up either as well. Thank you, Mark. Appreciate it. Mark Lipschultz, Blue Owl Capital co-CEO. Thank you so much. Still ahead this hour, as we said, the CEO of uh, Verizon's live in Las Vegas ahead of the Super Bowl. Plus, shares of Pinterest falling on a disappointing outlook despite the company announcing a new partnership with Google. Wall Street staying bullish on the name, even though we are seeing a drop here in the shares of more than 11%. Five analysts reiterating their buys with an average target of $45. Stock down 11.4%. Money movers will be right back. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. 
edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Verizon has arrived at the big game, the network provider building on their decade-plus-long partnership with the NFL, deploying some radios across Allegiant Stadium to keep fans connected during the game and activating content partnerships across the city throughout the weekend. Joining us live from Las Vegas today is Verizon CEO Hans Vestberg. Hans, uh, great to see you. I imagine you're in for a good time this weekend. I want to talk about the partnership, but I also want to talk to you about the, the marketing, the, the, the Super Bowl ad as a purchase and the sort of unle- unprecedented level of inflation that it's, we've seen since Super Bowl I. What <laughs> continues to make it uh, a good idea to, to buy a Super Bowl ad? First of all, this is the, the biggest sport event uh, during the year. The Super Bowl is, of course, bringing a lot of our customers' attention, both in the home, but here in Las Vegas or in the stadium. So for us, it's an important moment to show what we're doing for the NFL and for our fans, because the, we, we are really important with how the network is working at these times. So that's why it makes sense for us to be part of this. And, and of course, our NFL sort of relation is a a decade long that we have been building the networks in all the stadiums to see that actually the fans get experience both in the stadium and when they're outside the stadium. Yeah, talk about the, um, the network capacity. What changes as a result of some of these 5G deals? Uh, so first of all, I mean, what we're doing in the stadium for NFL is that we're private networks in, in all the 13 NFL stadiums in the United States, uh, where actually all the coach to coach communication is going on in private networks. So we're building very important customized, customized networks for NFL. Then on top of that, we, of course, added a lot of capacity into the stadiums because the usage in the network is just going up enormously. What we saw between this season and the last season was a growth of 47% in the usage in the network. It's, it's so important when you are in the stadium both to see the game but to also connect with all your friends, uploading, downloading at the same time. So we see a continuously importance on being connected when you are in the game. So that's why it's so important for us to be in them but also around. I mean we have basically triplicated our capacity in Las Vegas over the last three years because of everything that's happening in this urban place. Carl asked about the ads, Hans. You, you, I think, recently hired a new CMO, and I am curious what the goal, what her goal is, and what your goal is in terms of potentially represent, repositioning the brand, the brand perception when you have a competitor out there like T-Mobile saying that it's taken the crown for best U.S. wireless network. Yeah, we 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 are definitely still having the best network, but what we're focusing, of course, is that. More and more of marketing goes digital, so you need to be much better on that and see that you actually find your customers in other ways, in other ways. So I think that's what uh, Leslie uh, Berlin, our new CMO, will work with the team and see that we have the right offerings. We have been very localized. We're doing much more locally these times because the communities are so important for the culture, for the sports, what we're doing in the communities. So that type of marketing and being present will be more important than has been before because our society is always moving. Our brand needs to follow that. And I think that's what Leslie, our new CMO, will do together with the rest of the team. What about just customer growth in general? What, what do you see for that? And how is it going to be impacted by some price increases and your, your continued premium pricing? 
I think that when it comes to our pricing, I think that we have a value product, not only from the network, but also we have a lot of our perks, which includes you can have a Max, you can have Disney Plus on, on top of it with a, with a discount. So we try to give as much as we can to the customers and that value. And if you look at last year, we had the sequential improvement constantly. On our business side, we, we have been growing our uh, new customers with uh, over 125,000 for nine quarters. On the consumer side, we gradually improved them. And the last quarter, we, uh, we got more than 300,000 new wireless uh, subscribers. So definitely, it's, a, it's about having the right offering, the right network, and seeing that you get value for your customers. That's our job, and I think our team has been gradually improving that uh, through 23. Yeah, some after the recent results, we had some upgrades talking about growth in the second derivative on consumer net ads, ARPU, uh, service revenue, EBITDA, free cash flow. I wonder how much pressure do you feel to continue that chain going uh, in future quarters? So our work is to continue to serve our customers in the best way. If we serve our customers in the best way with the value of the network and, and all the uh, additional service we have on top of the network, I think we, we have, a, have a, an ambition to continue to grow. I mean, our ambition, of course, as a company is to grow our service revenue and have any beat and cash flow expansion. But it only comes when the customers are, are liking the products we have. And what we've seen when we're rolling out our 5G, we bought this spectrum called the C-band. When we roll that out, as we're doing right now, we see better growth rate in those markets. We see lower churn. Uh, we, take a, we have a better take rate for our premium plan. So we will just continue to roll out that C-band spectrum that we bought some three years ago. When we got the, the majority of the spectrum at the end of last year or in the third quarter. So that's a, a, our work. We deploy our capital where our customers are and where they need it. Finally, you know, there's a lot of chatter about uh, the cloud hyperscalers being in a sort of so-called CapEx arms race, where they're all trying to develop and innovate faster than the next guy. Would you argue that that translates as well to the wireless business? I think that what you've seen in the wireless business is, in, in the case of Verizon, we had our hump of investment in CapEx in the beginning of 5G, where we basically, from the data center to the edge of the network, needed to fiberize everything to see that you can transport all the data. Uh, I think right now we're in a little bit lower pace. That doesn't mean we're not doing everything we need to do. Uh, but we can benefit, of course, from the, what the hyperscalers are doing because ultimately they need a lot of power uh, at the edge of the network. If it's compute storage at the edge of the network, and we work with all the large hyperscalers to see that they can be part of our network and delivering that services based on our wireless and fiber network. What about AI? Are you using AI, Hans, or, or have plans to use AI, especially when it comes to, to use cases around 5G? We have been probably using AI for 10 years. Uh, of course, you start by having the most rudimentary AI where you find problems. Next, next is about you, you find a problem, you prescribe what to solve it. Now we're doing a lot of things on generative AI to see what we, what we will do. But ultimately, it's to, to improve how we serve our customers and how we deploy our capital better. So definitely, we have use cases for ourselves. But then I also see in the network, it's going to be a lot of need in my fiber and and wireless network for, for AI, because it's a lot of compute and storage that is needed both at the edge of the network, but also in the data centers. All that needs to be transported in our network, which is the largest network in the United States. So definitely what we're going to see going forward is even more growth. And if you look at uh, the Consumer Connect report we gave out 
uh, earlier today. I mean, the growth in the network the last five years is 130% growth. Of course, we need to build very efficient to meet that uh, growth in the network. And the majority of the users in the network is actually video, some sort of video, if it's uh, TikTok <laughs> or YouTube or streaming service. So that's what we see happening. Uh, fascinating. We hope you have a great time with the game. Can I get you to tell us your pick for the weekend? <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, we, we are actually part of the whole NFL team, so I'm not picking anything, but I'm just looking forward to a great game and, of course, a great connectivity in the stadium for all our fans that are Verizon customers. It's going to be fun to watch. Hans, appreciate the time on a busy weekend for you, I'm sure. It's good to see you. Hans Vestberger yes. for us. Thank you very much. Stella Khan, the CEO of Caesars, on what is expected to be a massive weekend for gambling out there in Vegas. Well, shares of Expedia down today. Despite this earnings beat, company announces a new CEO as Peter Kern resigns. You see shares down almost uh, better than 18% here. Back in a moment. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play at Walt Disney World Resort. Welcome back to Money Movers. I'm Bertha Coombs with your CNBC News update. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has directed the military to draw plans to evacuate the population from Rafah, as well as plans to defeat Hamas there. In a statement today, the office said a massive operation would be needed to evacuate civilians in order to eliminate Hamas from the area. More than 1.3 million people are believed to be in Rafah and is the last area unoccupied by Israeli forces. According to new data out from the city of New York, the housing crunch is the worst it has been in more than 50 years, with only 1.4% of the city's rentals available back in 2023. That's the lowest portion since 1968. Economists and housing experts consider a healthy vacancy rate to be somewhere between 5 and 8%. And soccer star Lionel Messi's no-show at a game in Hong Kong will cost the organizers $7.2 million in refunds to fans. The 50% refund to the 38,000 fans who attended will leave the organizer Tatler Asia with a loss of over $5 million instead of a planned profit. Best laid plans. Back over to you, Sarah. They offered, I think, what, 50% re refunds for people? Yeah. Yeah. They were pretty yeah. angry. Thank you, Bertha. Bertha Coombs. Disappointing outlook taking down shares of Take Two today. The CEO is going to join us to break down the quarter and the outlook right after the break. Stocks down almost 8%. Take Two shares sliding this morning after a slight earnings miss. More so, though, the cut in guidance for the quarter. Investors king in on details about the release date, of course, for Grand Theft Auto 6 as well. Joining us here exclusively on the results is Take Two Interactive CEO Strauss Zelnick. Welcome to Post 9. It's good to have you. Thanks for having me. So it, the, the guy down, that's, that's really what investors are focusing on. I Why? think that's right. And I, it's what very unusual saying? for us to guide down. Yeah. You know, generally speaking, we've been able to beat our guidance. And it's really related to three factors. One is actually sort of a good news factor. And two, somewhere mixed. So MBA 2K24 is a little bit slower, despite selling in over 7 million units. That said, in the fullness of time, we expect that NBA 2K24 will actually be as profitable as NBA 2K23, and it's a very big and profitable business. We had some weakness in mobile advertising. That's a reflection of some changes 
on the part of our partners, uh, as well as a shift in the way we're running our hyper-casual business, because we're now putting in-app spending as a possibility in our hyper-casual titles. So there's a shift of the mix from advertising to in-app spending. That has a near-term effect, uh, and ultimately I think will be a good thing. And then there's really a good news uh, story, which is we have this runaway hit in mobile called Match Factory, and we're supporting it greatly in the fourth quarter. That marketing spend hits our P&L in the quarter, and we hope benefits us with a profit in the next fiscal year. What about uh, the ad, this, this number two factor you mentioned, mobile ads? Does that come back? What's, what's Yeah, the I think it does come back. We're, we're running our business for profitability, and we're really taking our hyper-casual business and turning it into what we're calling a hybrid casual business. So without boring you overly, hyper-casual titles <laughs> used to last for about three months, and then they went away. And we're trying to turn those into much more durable titles, titles that are so engaging that consumers will make in-app purchases as well as watching advertising. But that, that is a shift, and we're going to take a hit on advertising to get there. If you really want to just turn the stock around, just tell us when Grand Theft Auto 6 is coming out. 2025. Relative to expectations. <laughs> 2025. Early 25, later yeah. 25. Uh, 2025, and we feel great about it. I mean, look, when the announcement that a trailer is coming breaks the Internet, <laughs> that's amazing. I know. Has that led to growth? Uh, it actually did affect yeah. Grand Theft Auto 5 and Grand Theft Auto Online. They're overperforming, so... I mean, to put this in context, Grand Theft Auto V has sold in over 195 million units. Red Dead Redemption has sold in, too, has sold in over 61 million units. It's pretty amazing. Uh, yeah, it was hard to miss that when, the, when that dropped. I do want to ask you about some behavioral stuff on the consumer front. Um, the whole shift of return to office is starting to make its way into food companies' commentary. Obviously, some real estate vac vacancy rates are dropping a bit in, in some cities. Is that good news for mobile over the long term? Oh, I think so. Because the way mobile is consumed is an avid mobile consumer is playing one of our games seven or eight times a day for about nine minutes. And so I don't, I don't actually think they're doing that at home or at their desk. I think that's when you're in transit. And we, and think, we just drove a know. record number of miles last year. Yeah. The US so I, I think for mobile, it's, it's fine. Now, you could ask the question about console. You know, are people at home actually playing console video games for a couple of hours? But, you know, we all, we all manage productivity pretty tightly, and, uh, and I don't think that's happening. I think people are consuming our console games in the evenings and on the weekends. What about Vision Pro? Is that a game changer for gamers? Look, I've been skeptical about VR as an entertainment platform for all the obvious reasons, nausea being the primary reason. The second being that it's really a 20-minute ex experience for most people. Like, most people keep those headsets on for about 20 minutes and then they have to stop either because they don't feel well or, or just because the notion of being in a public place with a vision and hearing occluding device on is a problem. That said, I'm not betting against Apple. So I think it's really, what they've done is very interesting. Essentially what they've said is to consumers, if you're willing to spend 3,500 bucks, you get to help us test this product. You're going to help us find the killer app if it exists, and I think it may. Uh, this is first generation. There's going to be a lot more to come. But is it something you guys are working on? We've, developing we've developed for VR, and if it turns out that it'll be an interesting platform to, for consumers, you know, we'll, we'll follow that program. Meanwhile, investing in future franchises or chapters of existing franchises, is that trajectory, is the bias up or down long term? Uh, both. I mean, we do both. So we bring out new iterations of our beloved franchises, and we have more of them than anyone else. We have 
11 titles that have each sold in more than 5 million units. We, I think, have the best collection of owned intellectual property across mobile and console. That said, if you're not constantly creating new intellectual property, you know, you're burning the furniture because everything has a decay curve. We can take the position it doesn't. I mean, Grand Theft Auto certainly does not appear to have a decay curve. But in the fullness of time, we have to refresh our product. We have to bring consumers new entertainment. And if we don't do that, we're, we're really sort of mortgaging our future. But you are talking about significant cost reductions well, right now, right? We are. It's sort of, you know, the truth is both. We are in growth mode. We have this huge pipeline coming. We have to support that growth. At the same time, there are a lot of costs that aren't related to headcount. So our, our biggest line item of expense is marketing. Can we get more efficient at marketing? That would be a game changer. We have a three-part strategy at the company. Be the most creative. I think most of the time people agree we are. Be the most innovative. That's why we're still here and we continue to change the company and grow the company and have the company evolve. And be the most efficient. And we're very proud of being the most efficient. We have to get in front of the fact that on the one hand, we're driving growth. On the other hand, the world is always changing. And if we can't create more efficiencies as, for example, generative AI technology is upon us, well, then shame on us. And we have a resilient, um, very um, high morale team. They're good at creating efficiencies. It sort of gets to what we've talked about this before. Uh, Netflix, for example, leaning into gaming more. Some of the projects that got shelved during the actor's strike not coming back. There's, I think Reuters this week called it the great contraction in, in media uh, creation. That's not happening in gaming, right? No, not at no, all. No. I mean, we, we still have plenty of shelf space because to create one of these really great titles is incredibly difficult. It's incredibly time consuming. It's very expensive. You need the balance sheet for it and you need the intestinal fortitude for it. Uh, we, have, we have both. And thankfully, generally speaking, when we seek perfection, our creative teams deliver it. What'd you make of Disney investing a billion and a half dollars in Epic Games to do well, I, I partnership? Think, you know, I think all of the legacy media companies are saying, wow, I guess we really should portfolio rebalance. It may be a, a day late and a dollar short. I'm never betting against Disney and Epic's a fine company. Um, I think it's a stretch to combine different creative universes and describe that as one big open world. Creating an open world game is the hardest thing you can do in the entertainment business. We do it. We do it with Grand Theft Auto Online. We do it with Red Dead Online. We do it with NBA 2K. Uh, it's extraordinarily difficult. And I, I think you have to be very thoughtful about how you would mix and match those different creative expressions. Because of what? Brand? Fortnite loyalty? and Disney coming together. Because the description was, hey, we're going we're to connect these somehow. Yeah. That's what, that's what, you know, the the very short quote said, and I read the same thing you did. Uh, I think that's a challenge, but I'm not betting against those organizations. All right, Strauss, more on that, it sounds like, as we learn. Yes. Uh, thank you very much for coming on, even on a tough day here, uh, and explaining the outlook and everything else. Strauss Selnick. Thanks for having me. Thank you, CEO of Take Two. When we come back, first AI, now chips. Tech Check will detail Sam Altman's next venture after a short break. OpenAI CEO Sam Altman now turning to chips, reportedly looking to raise an eye-popping $5 to $7 trillion for a new venture that would boast the world's biggest chip-building capacity. That's the focus of today's Tech Check segment with our Deirdre Bosa. What else do we know here, Deirdre? <laughs> 
Let me first just say that everything about this is just mind-boggling and huge in terms of ambition, scale, investment. This is like the moonshot of all moonshots. And here I'm going to use Google's definition, something that sounds undoable, but if done, could redefine humanity. That is what Sam Altman is apparently working on here, which also means that this should all be taken with some amount of skepticism. A lot would have to fall into place. So let's just start with the number. According to the journal, this could require up to $7 trillion. That is seven times the expected size of chip sales in 2030, more than five years away. It's more than the combined market caps of Apple and Microsoft. It is 7 million millions. And here it is written out, 12 zeros if you are counting. <laughs> we had to make it big. Now, the project itself is aimed at reshaping the world's chip building capacity. No small feat. Altman is going after one of the most complex, expensive, and geopolitically sensitive industries in the world. And it is a project that would create an equally complex partnership between OpenAI, chip makers, investors, power providers, and governments. Now, the most interesting is perhaps the why. OpenAI and Altman, they're on a quest to develop AGI, or Artificial General Intelligence, which OpenAI defines as systems that are broadly smarter than humans and therefore have the ability to teach itself, thereby creating new, even potentially smarter AGIs. That will require vast amounts of chips, already in short supply as the generative AI cycle gets more underway. So far, of course, Microsoft has been funding OpenAI's development to the tune of about $13 billion, that is potentially just a tiny, tiny drop in the bucket. $7 trillion would require capital from even bigger sources than the mega caps, like sovereign wealth funds in the Middle East, with trillions of dollars in assets. And that raises one of many, many questions, guys. If semiconductors are an issue of national security, which we know they are, would you let Abu Dhabi, Middle Eastern nation states, get a foothold? Other questions like the development of chips, something that is clearly very, very difficult to do. Everyone's been trying to create a GPU to rival that of NVIDIA's, and it's been tough going. Can Altman do it, even if he has the support of TSMC and others? Uh, yeah, in the meantime, it's the Altman News and the Department of Commerce uh, Chips Act Awards that are driving some of these, especially in the <laughs> semi-cap space, yeah. as we were mentioning a moment ago which seems tiny, right? This is a project that is, what, tens of billions of dollars? We're talking $7 trillion here. And, you know, it also raises questions. If Sam Altman wants to do this in the United States, there's snags in terms of labor, manufacturing capacity, and ability. Um, so where does this actually develop when, obviously, the Commerce Department, the Biden administration, is so concerned with moving chip manufacturing back to the United States out of places like Asia? $7 trillion, by the nature of that number, just means that this is going to be a global effort and a lot of figuring out is going to have to be done is where it's going to sit. Obviously, U.S. would be a great idea, but is the capacity there? That's one of the big questions facing this very ambitious future problem project, but also right now in front of us with the CHIPS Act. Yeah, no surprise right now. The biggest S&P gainer, AMAT, uh, along with a bunch of those other names. Uh, Dee, thank you, uh, Deirdre Bosa. When we come back, the CEO of Caesars is next as Super Bowl gambling is expected to hit new records with nearly 68 million Americans planning to bet on the big game. Stay with us. More than $23 billion expected to be gambled this year on the Super Bowl. Let's get back to Las Vegas with Contessa Brewer and the CEO of Caesars. Hi again, Contessa. Hi there, Carl. Great to see you. And great to see Tom Reeg with us for what I consider a pretty rare interview here on CNBC. Thank you for making time for me. Super Bowl in Las Vegas. Give me a sense of how this year is compared to what is typically a sellout weekend in Las Vegas. 
Yeah, kind of, that was the question for us, was would Super Bowl, with Super Bowl here, would it be a big lift versus a normal Super Bowl, which is already a big weekend in Vegas? And what we've found is demand is off the charts. If you compare to the Formula One race that we had here in November, which was all-time record credit, we're about double that for Super Bowl and room rates are up about 2x as well. So we expect a big week here. Okay, so that would provide some pretty tough comps then for next year. But is there a lasting legacy for having the Super Bowl here, for having hosted it? Sure, as a platform for the city, I don't know the stats, but you've got, what, tens of billions of people that are watching this around the globe. It's really a stage for the city to shine, and Vegas is built for events like this. You've got 150,000 hotel rooms that are within 15 minutes of the stadium. You know, we're ready for our moment in the spotlight. I know that the uh, travel and tourism experts in Las Vegas really want us to move past Sin City as the branding for Las Vegas. Does sports help you do that? Oh, certainly. I mean, this is, you have world-class restaurants here. You've got world-class golf, world-class shopping. It's been a long time since this was a gambling-only city, and sports is the next step in that evolution. Let's talk a little bit about sports gambling and and what's coming in not only on Super Bowl, but generally throughout the year. Caesars has come in, and you've taken away some market share from one or two of your competitors. Why aren't the, the power of Caesars rewards? You have one of the biggest rewards databases in the gaming industry. Why hasn't that fueled more market share? Well, at the moment, we're, we're out of the subsidy game in digital. So the market share wars are driven by who's buying the most share. You know, we were in that game when we launched the brand in 21. We've since moved to how do we make this a profitable business. We've got a full year of profitability in our rear view mirror. We're over a billion dollars of revenue now in digital and growing. And so we're not focused on share, we're focused on making money. And and I know you make more money on iGaming or online casino games. Give me a sense of how you strategize, given the history of bricks and mortar gambling, how do you strategize into iGaming? That's where the Caesars Rewards database is key for us. We're over 60 million strong in the database and that really feeds into Casino. We launched our Caesars Palace online in September, which is a casino-facing app, and our first full quarter post-launch, our handle in iGaming was up 50%. Handle the amount wagered. Sarah, you wanna jump in here? Yeah, on this online sports betting, I am curious if you're expecting more regulations to come. You know, the Treasury put out a big report just this week about not necessarily related to your industry, but money laundering and all sorts of financial risks. And it was mentioned in the money laundering section that the rapid growth of sports betting could cause a significant and increasing money laundering risk. And I wonder if that's something that you expect to be coming in terms of regulation. I'm not looking for more regulation in the money laundering area. We are already a heavily regulated business in that area in bricks and mortar. And as we've moved to digital, that focus and that regulation has followed us. So not necessarily. 
problem. My other question is totally unrelated. It has to do with, you said, the, the record rates you're getting that you were talking about with Contessa. We saw Taylor Swift drive a big surge in, in Revpar for some of these hotels at some of her stops along her tour. And I wonder if, since she's been involved, you're seeing a premium there as well, if there's any way to measure that. Well, I can measure it in my own family. My two daughters arrived tonight, and that was driven by Taylor Swift. <laughs> they, they think that they might have a chance to meet her out there, like their yes. dad is so connected. They think, yes, they're yeah. going to be sitting with her at the game. I, I have one more question here. We know that you already pre-announced earnings, but you've got earnings coming up a couple weeks from now. Give me a sense of the labor deal with the culinary union and how that has impacted the bottom line. What do you expect of that going forward? So we signed a record-setting contract with the culinary union. Remember, Contessa, these are the, the, the employees that we leaned on coming out of COVID. They had a very, very difficult job dealing with masking and dealing with just coming out every day when it was scary to come out. They deserved every penny they got, and we were proud to sign that contract in the fourth quarter. That'll elevate our costs as we move forward, but this business is strong enough that we'll offset that. Uh, you're wearing a red tie, but and you know, mo in most Super Bowls, we would know by the color of the tie which team you're rooting for, but now we don't know. I'm rooting for the Bears, so somehow <laughs> they get in the Super Bowl. All right. Tom, thank you. Appreciate you being here. Thank you, Contessa. Sarah, Carl? <laughs> thank you. Contessa, that was good. Contessa Rohr with the CEO of Caesar. Sticking with the Super Bowl, Chinese e-commerce giant Timu will air a commercial during the big game, and some in Congress are not happy about it. GOP Congresswoman Carol Miller, for instance, of West Virginia, sent a letter to the CEOs of Paramount and CBS urging them to not air any advertisements from the company during the game. Miller highlighting that Timu has been non-compliant with laws that prohibit illicit products from entering the U.S. This is Timu's second year running an ad during the Super Bowl, spending a reported $15 million dollars for the ad this year. We know about their growth story in the U.S. market. I do think it's interesting that it's receiving some backlash from Congress. Wonder, I haven't heard anything from CBS or Paramount about whether they'll comply. Uh, yeah, it's hard to imagine that they would, uh, but it, we'll, we'll take note of it. As for next week, uh, we talked about CPI Tuesday, but we're also going to get retail sales and PPI in there as well. Yeah, I mean, retail sales, because we're coming off of December that was stronger than expected. This is a key input into first quarter growth. Bank of America spending data earlier this week showed it could be a little softer in January because of the weather, but nothing really to worry about with the consumer as long as unemployment stays low and wages are now growing faster than inflation in some areas. So that's real disposable income. Yeah. And growth. some of the bullish uh, scenarios that say David Kelly was spinning on a rare today where you get continued relief on inflation from used cars on goods and maybe some auto insurance numbers keep coming down and employment stays steady. That spread, uh, the real wage component where you have money freed up from moderating inflation would definitely be supportive to the consumer. I do think one question is how the market would react to a little bit hotter inflation rate. Now that we've gotten some good growth numbers and some patience and wanting to see more evidence on the part of the Fed, that the biggest question mark is over the Fed's reaction function. What what do they want to see? You know, he, Powell says more good data, not necessarily better data on inflation uh, and growth. So I think that's going to keep the market guessing a little bit when it comes to especially some of the big tradable events like a CPI report. All right. And by the way, speaking of Fed speak, we're going to get next week Bark and Kashkari, uh, Goolsby's in there as well, uh, Daily, some voters for sure. 
Yeah, so, and look, they've all been pretty consistent, I would say, in the message that March is not really in their thinking, but they have shifted towards cuts. So as long as they continue to talk about cuts and the data comes in good, that's been a good story for the markets. S&P higher now, what, 14 of the last 15 weeks. That's right, as we continue to hold above uh, uh, 5K here, even though with some weakness uh, in the Dow, as we put to bed, pretty busy week, not just a Fed speak, uh, and not so much data, but definitely the corporate results this week have had us quite busy. So ha enjoy the game. Go Niners. because of my family. <laughs> Everyone knows I'm a Bengals fan, but my husband's a diehard fan. So go Niners. I'm really just watching the commercials. The Super yes. Bowl is like a break game. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.